to be auctioned off for the, we decided to, to use them to auction them off for the newly created Snoopy Scholarship. And we, there are three panels, and we very cleverly divided them into 165 uh, tickets each that, that you can buy for a dollar each. Well, we didn't count on how smart some people are. Somebody bought all of them yesterday uh, of all 165 of the first batch. That's the bad news, or the good news, uh, depending on the Snoopy recipient. It didn't. It, it was very smart, and I wish I thought of it. <laughs> now, the good news is we still have two more panels, and we are limiting them to five, only five per person but we want to distribute the wonderful wealth. They're unique, they're impossible to come by if, unless you come to the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference every year just for that purpose. Are you going to point out that rich person that those? Uh, the rich person only paid $165 for something that's a lot more valuable than that. But, um, and it also went to a wonderful cause. And uh, so next year there will be a Snoopy. If somebody looks like Snoopy at the conference next year, you'll know it's the recipient. Uh, let me read you something that came out recently from Herb Cain in, in San Francisco, the, the columnist who's also come here as a speaker. He says, imagine hearing someone say, undoubtedly, quite airily, ah, yes, I knew Vincent Van Gogh when he had both his ears. That was part of the news in yesterday's best story in the Chronicle, the one about Madame Jean-Louise Calmont of Arles, France, celebrating her 120th birthday, Tuesday, as the oldest person in the world. This is for real. Now, this is one woman we'd all like to meet. Alert as a hummingbird, we read, and possessed of a piquant sense of Gallic humor. I only have her had one wrinkle, and I'm sitting on it, she said. <laughs> at 100, she was still riding a bicycle, and at 117, she stopped smoking. <laughs> Mon Dieu. And she knew Vincent van Gogh, of course, because he too lived in Arles. Quote, ugly as sin and smelling of alcohol, but as yet uncut of ear. The story noted that, quote, the all-time documented record for longevity is held by Shigeyo Izumi of Japan, who died February 21st, 1986, at the age of 120 years and 237 days. But Assistant Professor John Wilmoth of the UC Center for the Economics and Demography of Aging disputes that. Izumi's real name is questionable, he says. Madame Calmont is the only truly documented 120 year old. You probably want to wonder where I'm going, don't you? <laughs> he and the 20 have have faith. He and 25 Berkeley co colleagues celebrated her birthday with chocolate cake and champagne, and then they all signed. What did they all sign? A Snoopy birthday card, and mailed it to her. On the cover, Snoopy is asking, "How old did you say you were this year?" And inside, he's keeled over in surprise. 
Bon anniversaire, Jean-Louis. So Snoopy is everywhere, as you perhaps noticed. We were out in Bangkok. We uh, stopped at a restaurant that was the Snoopy restaurant and a very badly drawn Snoopy. You don't realize how well drawn Snoopy is until you try to copy it. I did once. A disaster. It's very sophisticated. Over the years, it would be interesting to see how it's slightly changed, how Charlie Brown has slightly changed over the years since the beginning. They're very sophisticated artistic drawings. Someone said when we asked Charles Schultz to come to our first conference 23 years ago, why, uh, why have a cartoonist at, at a writer's conference? And I said, who do you think fills in those little balloons for him? Uh, he is not Marcel Marceau. He is a, a writer first, I think, and uh, secondly, a distinguished uh, artist. And incidentally, I, I for one, uh, love is fairly new to me. Uh, panels, the big panels with the with the backgrounds and so forth. I like those even even more somehow. But anyway, he's been a great friend of the conference since the very beginning, and I hope you welcome Mr. Charles Schultz. Sometimes they import people in from Hollywood, you know, to fake you out. The National Cartoonist Society has a pretty good organization. We've been going for 50 years, and each year we vote, nominate, and then vote for the person that we call the Outstanding Cartoonist of the Year. And uh, we give out a large trophy, a little bit bigger than, a, than an Oscar. It was designed by Rube Goldberg, and it shows a bunch of strange characters on top of each other with an ink bottle uh, resting at the top. Uh, three years ago, at least not last year or the year before, but the year before that, I had the great pleasure of standing up as I am here with the Reuben, it is called, after Rube Goldberg, and being able to read off to the assembled and excited group of cartoonists the phrase, and the winner this year, the outstanding cartoonist of the year, is Miss Kathy Geiswhite, and I'd like to have all of you meet Kathy, the creator of Kathy. <laughs> One of my favorite people. Uh, 
Back when I was, or oh, I imagine about in the 11th grade, I was taking an English class with a teacher who considered herself quite progressive. And one of the assignments one year was to do an essay on something which I can't even remember now. But the previous couple of years, I had clipped coupons out of our local paper in St. Paul, and I have no idea how much uh, each volume costs, but I know if you took a certain amount of these coupons up to your local drugstore who was cooperating for something like maybe 50 cents or 35 cents, I'm not sure, it was a good value, they put out a series or, or a set of 20 volumes called World's Greatest Literature, and I managed to get about 10 of them. I selected the ones that I wanted the most, like Ivanhoe and things like that. But then after that was over, they put out a, uh, a set of encyclopedias. Each set was maybe an inch and a half wide. They were blue, and I don't know if it was called the New American Encyclopedia or something like that. But our family had never had any books uh, in our house at all. I used to buy all the comic books that came out, of course, and I had the very first famous funnies and Superman and all of those, but we really didn't have many books. But I gradually, over a period of week after week after week, I accumulated this complete set of encyclopedias. Well, when the teacher gave us this assignment, I looked up in our, uh, our set, and there was only about this much about whatever it was I was supposed to write. And the Encyclopedia Britannica in the school library, of course, was always taken up with so many other students that were in ahead of me. And so I copied down as best I could what little bit was in that, and I gave it to the teacher. And, of course, I got my usual failing grade because she said I, I hadn't said very much, and I said, uh, well, uh, that's all that the encyclopedia had to say about this. And she says, well, uh, I think you need a new, a new set of encyclopedias. <laughs> I never forget a slight. <laughs> uh, I've thought about that a lot, and uh, it saddens me when I think of how or what teachers can do to us with just one little phrase. Here was this so-called advanced intellectual teacher with a chance to talk to a young person who had no books up until now in his home and had worked over a period of weeks and months to accumulate his own set of encyclopedias of which I was so proud. I would sit many, many times and just look at these books in our bookcase and I was so proud of them. Uh, why didn't she find out where the set of encyclopedias had come from? Why didn't she eventually then find out how I had accumulated these books? And why didn't she use that as an opportunity to instill and to encourage uh, and flatter me with some words about uh, how good it was that I should have accumulated these books. Because, as Barnaby said, what am I doing here today? You know, what's a lowly cartoonist doing among a group of writers like this? You know why? It's because <laughs> I love books, that's all. I'm here because I like books. I like roaming around uh, among all of those books out there and I like picking up a new novel when I start to read it I read maybe a half the first chapter then I stop and I always look at the the jacket and then I turn the back look at the author again and I like to feel the binding to see what sort of accomplishment it was 
with the person who, who made this wonderful binding. Because I'm proud of books and I love books and I still like to sit in a chair and just look at the books that we have accumulated at home. And in my studio I've got three enormous bookcases filled with all sorts of volumes and I love to just sit there and look at them. So that, that's why I'm here this afternoon is because, like you, I just enjoy being among people who like books and who like writing and I love to talk with all of you and uh, with all of you with you know, whom I've made friends about what you've read lately and what I've read and that sort of thing and that is why I'm here. Okay? <laughs> uh, I suppose a good comic strip really has to have characters and if you look back upon all the great comic strips in the past each one of them had one certain character and they, they all had a lot in common. You know, Pogo is a lot like Charlie Brown and uh, Pogo, Charlie Brown is a lot, uh, both are a lot like Beetle Bailey. There's always a certain uh, character around which all the others revolve. Charlie Brown is the main character in the Peanuts comic strip. Linus said to him once, after we die, do you ever get a chance to come back? Charlie Brown says, only if you've had your hand stamped. <laughs> isn't quite as dumb as some of the, his friends make him out to be. He said, one day all my life I've been waiting for that pie in the sky. He says, when it finally came, it had coconut on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate things with coconut on it, and I've taught my children we hate coconut cookies, and uh, a good piece of lemon pie can be spoiled with coconut on the top. <laughs> uh, some of the kids were talking one day, and Linus was explaining. He said, so I had to tell the teacher that I just didn't know. He says, maybe some questions don't have an answer. And Snoopy said, like, did Jesus ever own a dog? <laughs> I like the uh, little relationship with Marcy and Peppermint Patty. For a long while, I drew the strip realizing that really it was uh, a little too much boy-centered and, and I needed some uh, uh, more girls in there in the strip. And finally, I, over a period of a couple of years, I developed Marcy and Peppermint Patty. Patty, of course, is one that falls asleep in school all the time. Marcy's a little more bright. She said, the teacher said, uh, we're supposed to read a biography next week. Whose biography are you going to read, sir? Patty says, I don't know, somebody who didn't live very long. <laughs> Uh, I've got a piece of trivia here, which is a good time to read it, if I can find it. Oh yeah, do you realize, let's see now, I've been drawing this thing for 45 years, and I don't know how, when it first started, Lucy opened up her psychiatric booth because it was really just a takeoff on the lemonade stands that all of the cartoon characters used to have when I was a kid reading comics. So I was trying to think of something about lemonade stands, and then it occurred to me that we live in a different age, and when I started it, uh, a, psychi a psychiatric booth seemed to be appropriate. Now, do you realize that Charlie Brown has visited Lucy's booth 120 times? <laughs> And if you add up the cost, most of the time it's five cents. Sometimes she charges a little more if it's in the winter and there's some um, 
uh, work of shoveling sidewalks and things like that, so she'll raise it. But roughly, he, <laughs> he has spent $6. <laughs> and uh, he's really no better off now than he was <laughs> when he started. And there may be some truth in that someplace, I don't know. <laughs> he went to Lucy's psychiatric booth one day and he says, I don't know, I just feel lonely a lot of the time. <laughs> she said, why don't you try taking dancing lessons? Dance lessons? So what if no one will dance with me? She said, then you'll be a lonely person who knows how to dance. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And, of course, Charlie Brown has to suffer with the uh, living with this weird little sister, Sally. She had to read a book for school. He said, did you enjoy the book? She said, I don't know. I slept all the way through it. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then he has a brother, Spike. He's got, he comes from, I think, a family of eight. Uh, showing the love in the family. You know, they all came and visited him when he was in the hospital. And uh, Andy came, and Olaf, the fat one. Uh, they were talking about whether Snoopy would get well or not. And uh, one of the puppies mentioned something about uh, what happens after we die. And Olaf was horrified. He says, I didn't know we die. But, <laughs> uh-huh. but anyway... Uh, <laughs> See, dogs are lucky. They don't know things like that. You know? <laughs> Uh, or maybe they do, I don't know. Spike is the one that uh, is so thin and he lives all by himself out in the desert. And he's writing back to Snoopy one day and he says, Life here on the desert is exciting. Last night the sun went down and this morning the sun came up. He says, There's always something happening. <laughs> I don't know how many of you lie awake at night worrying about things. (laughs) The older you get, I think, the more you're apt to wake up at two in the morning or three and lie there and worry about everything. Uh, I don't mind it as long as I can think of something funny when I'm lying there. I wrote an entire television show after bypass surgery lying in the hospital on about the uh, fifth day. I I was feeling all right but I couldn't go to sleep. And at three o'clock in the morning, I knew what kind of a story I wanted to write, but I needed an angle. I needed uh, just one little phrase. And I thought if I can think of this one phrase, which I finally did, and uh, I laid there for about another hour, and I wrote the whole show in my mind so that when I got home, I was able to call up Bill Melendez, the animator in Hollywood, and say, Bill, I've got a great idea. I just wrote a whole show, and that's how I wrote... um, what have we learned, Charlie Brown? Because that was the phrase that I needed. What have we learned, Charlie Brown? And that was the, uh, the phrase that we used that tied the whole thing together. So lying awake at night is not always a complete waste of time. Charlie Brown says, Sometimes I lie awake at night and I ask, Why am I here? <laughs> then a voice answers, Why, where do you want to be? <laughs> He says, sometimes I lie awake at night and just stare into the darkness. Then a voice comes to me that says, stop staring, you're making us nervous. You know? uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sometimes I lie awake at night and I think, 
Maybe I can change my life around. Then a voice comes to me out of the dark. Sure, make a lot of paperwork for the rest of us. Uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) So sometimes I lie awake at night and I ask, why am I here? Then a voice says, we can't take your question right now. We're all out rollerblading. (laughs) So... So maybe it pays. It's, it's nothing to be too disturbed about if you have to lie there and can't think of anything. Now, here is something that perhaps those of you that are trying desperately to write something that has a little more meaning than you had hoped. Uh, I don't do this deliberately. I uh, People say to me, I suppose you'd like to go to playgrounds and you just... Uh, hang around there and watch kids play, you know, and get a lot of ideas watching children. I said, you know, that's be the dumbest thing I, I ever heard of. Uh, you, you get no ideas watching children play. In fact, I get no ideas watching anybody. I just sit in my room by myself and think of these things, which is kind of weird, but that's, uh, that's the way it's done. If you can't do it, you're never going to make it. If you wait for inspiration, you're never going to make it. And if you uh, worry about things like writer's block, uh, I consider writer's block an amateur's problem. Uh, a cartoonist is a lot like uh, an actor. The curtain goes up, you go out on the stage and you do it. The paper comes out every day, whether it's morning or evening, and you do it. There's no time to monkey around and to worry about uh, inspiration and this sort of thing. You sit down with a blank piece of paper and you deliberately create something funny because if you don't, the day goes by and you have to do it. And I've been doing that now every day for 45 years, which somebody says is over 16,000 ideas. And I don't know where the ideas come from, I just think of them. And I know how to do it, because uh, if you pardon the expression, I'm a professional, and I know how to do it. There's no room for writer's block. That's an amateur's problem. Uh, This doesn't mean that you you don't have days where you can't think of something, because this happens all the time. And I think the most dangerous uh, worry is when you lose your judgment as to what is funny and what is not funny. And uh, I never trust showing it to anybody because I don't trust what people say. I only use my own judgment. But there are times when you can hit a slump, and I've noticed this in in the work of many others, that the cartoonist has drawn something, and it's not funny at all. But the man or woman who drew it that day had no idea. Uh, He or she lost their sense of judgment, and they just didn't know it was funny. And so they went ahead and drew it, not realizing that what they had thought of just lays there. It's uh, It's not funny at all. Uh, so that's that's the bigger worry than not being able to think of anything at all. But little by little in your reading, you come across little things. And I imagine that uh, each of you has done this. And if you haven't, you, you certainly can. You come across odd little uh, truths or little sayings or things like that. Now, it's not that you go searching through Bartlett's quotations trying to find something that's appropriate, although I do that quite often, too. I uh, love to go through there and just pick out little phrases and things will give me an idea for something. But if you look around long enough, you will come across uh, little truths, little sentences and things which can be worked into something. Like, if you, now, so, uh, if you read my strip long enough, if you've read it long enough, these are things which you can learn. And you don't expect to learn things like this in a little tiny comic strip, which is not much bigger than four airmail stamps. But things like this do appear now and then and I like them when dogs drink from the river Nile they do it while running so as not to be seized by crocodiles that's that's a great thing to know isn't it and of course (laughs) when somebody told that to Snoopy uh, he goes running by his water dish (laughs) (laughs) 
Charlie Brown and Schroeder, of course, have these conferences on the mound because Charlie's the pitcher and uh, Schroeder is the catcher, and you know catchers are always going out onto the mound to uh, talk to the pitcher. Schroeder goes out one day, and Charlie Brown wants to know why he's out there on the mound for a conversation, and Schroeder says, it broke Beethoven's heart when Julietta Giacardi married Count von Gallenberg. You know, <laughs> and Charlie Brown says, catchers have a lot in their mind, don't they? <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. And did you know that uh, the World War I plane, a Sopwith Camel, had a 110 horsepower Lerone engine? You didn't know that. If you had read my strip, you would know that, you see? Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> uh, did you know that Petanque originated in Provence in 1910? You don't even know what Petanque is. I mean, a lot of you don't even know what a Zamboni is. Do you know, <laughs> do you know that in your presence today, there stands a man, the only person you will probably ever meet in your whole life, who owns two Zambonis? Yeah. <laughs> I just bought a brand new Zamboni last week. Now I got two of them. Most of you don't know a person who owns one Zamboni, but I know I own two Zambonis. Zamboni is the thing that cleans the ice uh, in, the per in between periods of a hockey game or during a skinny competition and things like that. Yeah. And what's a petanque? A petanque? <laughs> petanque is a, it's a French game where you toss the balls at another little tiny ball and whoever tries to get the closest. Now, all, all games are basically alike, but anyway, now you know that Petanque originated in Provence in 1910. If you had read my strip, you would have known that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, did you know that there's a Chinese proverb? Those who have free seats, hiss first. I like that one, yeah. <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Did you know that when Tolstoy was writing War and Peace, his wife used to put the children to bed. I don't know how many they had at that time. It seems to me they had a couple of them. The servants had already gone to bed. She would put the two children to bed. He would be in another room frantically writing out War and Peace. She would sit down at her nice little desk, gather the paper together, and she had an inkwell and a dip pen, and she would take his papers from the other room and he, where he was scribbling out War and Peace, and she would copy, as she did, she copied War and Peace seven and a half times with a dip pen, and most people can't even read it. You know, isn't that incredible? But she should have done that. She said those were the happiest days of her life. Now, if, <laughs> if you had read the Peanut Sunday page several years ago, you would have known this. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And this was something that I really would have scooped everybody on, except that those of you, of course, who have done this kind of uh, World War II reading. I had it all planned out in a Sunday page, and I would have surprised everybody, except my Sunday pages are drawn, oh, at least 12 to 14 weeks ahead of time. So by the time it had gone in uh, for publication, this little anecdote here had come out. But did you know that General Rommel's, Rommel's wife was named Lucy Maria? And he wasn't in Normandy on June 6th when the invasion happened because it was her birthday. And he had gone home to be with her and brought her a pair of handmade gray suede shoes, size uh, five and a half, which he had ordered in Paris. See, now, if you had read my Sunday page last year, you would have known that. But <laughs> so that's why Rama wasn't at uh, Normandy on D-Day. He wasn't there, because it was his wife's birthday. But now you know. Mm -hmm. 
Now, and <laughs> those of you who know that Wallace Stevens, of course, probably one of your favorite poets, did you know that he had a wife named Elsie and that she was the model for the 1916 Liberty Head Dime? Mm -hmm. Sally wrote that in her report. And uh, <laughs> uh, she got sent to the principal's office for doing something. She says, I never did get around to the Lincoln Head Penny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And did you know that Blackbeard the pirate buried all his stolen gold in the Mojave Desert and that he once spent a night in a motel in Needles? Uh, that last one is not true. I made that one up. <laughs> Peanut started in uh, the fall of 1950. We had, uh, I think, seven newspapers that first month and it gradually crept up to uh, 20 some 40 some I didn't think we'd ever get to a hundred I heard about other comic strips like Nancy that appeared in 400 papers and all of that I never thought that we would get that many and I read a book review of Pogo those days Pogo was in 80 papers and here I was just in seven papers but we are now in uh, I think we're in 2500 newspapers more newspapers than any other comic strip any other newspaper feature in the history of the business which is uh, good. But things are not always perfect, of course, because I remember the first couple of weeks that Peanuts ran in the Minneapolis paper, there appeared a letter to the editor because there had been a comic strip called Herman, which was by Clyde Lamb. And Clyde Lamb was really good. He drew very funny pictures. He had good characters. And they dropped uh, Herman when they put peanuts in the paper and somebody wrote into the paper and here I am just getting started after all these years of trying to get going and it says bring back Herman throw peanuts to the elephants so uh, <laughs> got off to kind of a weak start and then a, a few weeks uh, later maybe months later I drew a series where Charlie Brown had his kite caught in the tree and he stood there all week long hanging on to this kite while the other kids came by and said stupid things to him but uh, it just went on day after day after day. And uh, I got a wonderful clipping from a paper where some, uh, I think it was a Methodist minister that wrote in about that. He liked that series, and he said, Charlie Brown is showing us a first-rate dedication to a second-rate cause. I always liked that one, too. <laughs> where do the ideas come from? I can't explain it. When I wrote the book, Peanuts Jubilee, I tried to explain it because I thought it could be explained, but I, dis I discovered it really can't. You can think of broad themes and that kind of thing, but as far as thinking of the, those little punchlines at the end, I don't know where they come from. Sometimes they don't come uh, from any place at all. But I remember in the seventh grade, and this is uh, one of the first revelations I had about the cruelty that exists among children. I was sitting at my desk and I saw two girls go over to another tall girl who I knew wasn't very well liked anyway. She was kind of a pompous type, but um, they went over to her and they said, we're having a party this weekend and we're going to invite everybody, but we're not going to invite you. And I was just stunned that anybody would say anything to this, to somebody like that. It didn't bother me because I knew I wouldn't, wouldn't get invited anyway. So, But uh, I never forgot that, in, which is one of the, the little themes that used to filter in uh, the Peanuts comic strip. And then I had some friends with whom I used to play golf years ago. We used to play a game, those of you that uh, play golf, uh, it was called Bingo Bango Bungo. We didn't have a lot of money, but so we used to just play for a nickel a point. 
The game is that the first person to hit uh, his ball on the green wins a nickel, and after everybody is on the green, uh, who's ever closest to the hole gets a nickel, and whoever puts into the hole first wins a nickel. So it's possible to win 15 cents on a hole. And it, the game comes out pretty even. You don't have to be good, uh, e equally good in the game because it works out pretty even. And this one day there was this fellow named Bill playing with us, and Bill had a terrible temper. And if he was playing bridge and he was losing, he'd always get up and walk around the table figuring walking around six times would change his, change his luck. Or he'd sit so that he was facing the same way as the bathtub in the other room. He had a lot of these superstitions like that. And, uh, uh, but he just hated losing and he was always losing at things. So one day we're playing golf and we're playing bingo, bango, bongo. He hadn't won a single point for nine holes. We're on the tenth hole and I had just shot over toward the green and Bill was walking behind me. And as he walked behind, I, I heard somebody talking. And I turned around to find out who Bill was talking to and to discover that he was talking to himself. He was just mumbling as he walked behind me. Finally, he disappeared over a little rise there in the, on the fairway. And I know all he had was an easy chip shot onto the green, and he'd win one of these. He'd win this bingo. Well, as they say, as Johnny Miller on TV says, he chunked it. And... <laughs> Next thing I know, I see, I look over the rise, and there's Bill on his hands and knees, and he's just pounding the ground like the, with his wedge. He is so mad. So finally he gets up. We finish the hole. We walk over onto the next tee, and Bill is saying, I can't do anything. He says, I can't play tennis. I can't play bridge. I can't play basketball. I can't play softball. I can't play golf. I'll never be able to do anything. I just can't do anything. He says, I should just go home at night and just not do anything. I said, Bill, that's a great idea. Why don't you... <laughs> Why don't you just go home at night and read? He says, I can't even read good, you know. <laughs> so that really, the memory of Bill doing all of that was what prompted me to, to give this kind of losing frustration that Charlie Brown used to go through. I don't do it as much anymore, but that's what started all of that. So uh, in a way, that's where cartoon ideas come from. These are the themes that you have to work on and wrestle with, and uh, those are the things that laid the foundation for what Charlie Brown eventually became. Um, <laughs> somebody said to Snoopy once, you've been a dog all your life, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> what made you decide to become a dog? He says, I was fooled by the job description. <laughs> Almost every time that I'm interviewed by some writer of some kind, they ask the question, are you going to create any new characters? Well, this is not the way it works. You don't deliberately create a new character because you feel it's time to have a new one. New characters come spontaneously from ideas and stories that you have thought of. So the question really should be, are you going to think of any new ideas? And of course you're going to think of new ideas. And if you're lucky, from these storylines or something, new characters will spontaneously arrive. And, and this is the way that sort of thing uh, is it done? Are there any questions? Anything you'd like to talk about? Because uh, I never know what you're really interested in. But yeah. How did you happen to choose a dog, Snoopy, instead of a cat? Well, I can't draw cats. <laughs> and I've always said that anybody lives in California, the same state that Gus Areola lives in, and used to draw the most marvelous animals that ever existed. You know, it'd be crazy. Uh, cats are like Christmas trees. They're very difficult to draw. <laughs> yeah. What prompted you to buy two Zambonis? Zambonis. What prompted me to buy two Zambonis? Well, you need a, 
an extra Zamboni because when you're cleaning the ice, say you're having a skating competition or something, and suddenly the axle on one Zamboni breaks and the thing is right in the middle of the ice and it's knocked a big chunk out of the ice, what are you going to do with it? You have to get a uh, tractor and haul it off. Now how are you going to clean the ice? You have to get a fire hose out there and a bunch of guys sweeping it, and to freeze the ice with a fire hose takes almost an hour, so you have to have a spare Zamboni. <laughs> The question is, why did I have Snoopy so ill and all of that? I only did it to bring the brothers in. I was looking for a, a way to bring little Andy in, who's very, very fussy, fuzzy, and, and uh, Olaf. And they don't work very well running around doing the things that Snoopy does. And I discovered also a long time ago that if you bring a cat into the strip or too many other dogs, suddenly you've got an animal strip. And this, this whole relationship that Snoopy has with the other characters is quite unique. Uh, somehow they always know what he's thinking about, even though they can't hear what... He doesn't talk. And uh, it's a very difficult line to walk, and you have to be careful. It's very, very easy to run off the track when you're creating a comic strip and do something which seems like a great idea at the time, but eventually can destroy the whole premise of the strip. And there's two perfect examples of that. The most perfect example is uh, Little Abner getting married. It's the biggest mistake ever made in the history of comic strips. The bottom dropped right out of the strip, and he never recovered from that uh, because this was the, the theme of the whole strip was that uh, all men want to be pursued, pursued by a beautiful girl like Daisy. Now they're married, what happens? The bottom fell out of the strip. The second one, I think, which is a little more subtle, was in Popeye, where he finally got Eugene the Jeep, who used to be able to predict what was going to happen all of the time. And that wasn't as funny as uh, Popeye just hitting people. That was funny. Uh, so, th th But these things can happen to you before you know it, and you have to be very careful when you, when you introduce a new character or do something like that. Yeah? I want to know what idea you had that caused you to create the character of Woodstock. Oh, the character of Woodstock, uh, I used to draw birds a lot, but I never drew them very well. It took me years to learn how to draw them in kind of a funny way. And I did a series where two little birds were being born on a nest on Snoopy's stomach. And then they had a hard time flying away, and he got so impatient with them, hoping that they would hurry up and learn how to fly so they'd get off his stomach. And then uh, eventually one of the birds became Snoopy's secretary. But that caused me a slight problem, too, and I found out that it would be better if the bird was a male bird and was just a friend of Snoopy. And this has worked out much better. And I got the, the uh, name Woodstock from reading Life magazine one day about the Woodstock Festival, and that's how that came about. <laughs> yeah? Are you going to bring back Pigpen? I never can think of ideas. Pigpen or Dennis the Menace ideas. And I, uh, that's not the way my mind works. So I, I, I'm always trying to think of something about Pigpen, but I just can't seem to do it. <laughs> I can't draw horses either. <laughs> well, there's no room for a horse in this strip, you see. In Prince Valiant, there's a, there used to be a lot of room, but not in my strip. <laughs> yeah. Were you very involved in the creation of the musical? You're a good the man. music, the, I had not absolutely nothing to do with You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. The only thing is that when I talked to the two producers in New York, I said, don't try to do anything to make it sophisticated or to charm the New York audience or anything. Just play it straight. They could have made a lot of mistakes, 
but they had a good director, I can't even remember his name now, but uh, it was one of those miraculous happenings where everything fell into place just right, and they made no mistakes. It's the most performed musical in the history of the American theater, musical theater, yeah, because every... Every school, college, uh, everybody has put on You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And almost everybody that I meet these days say, oh, yeah, I, I was Lucy back in, when I was a little kid and all of that. I think the Snoopy play was a little bit better. The Snoopy play had music, which was a little bit uh, uh, more musical. But You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown is the most performed musical in the history of the American theater. But I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. You oh, right behind you here. Yeah. Can you draw a support panel? Can I draw one? No. I think that those of us can, who can draw have a distinct advantage and this is why I think we make better comic strip artists than somebody who sits at a typewriter and tries to write gags for cartoonists because a person who cannot draw cannot think visually, cannot create the visual ideas which I think uh, is uh, the basis for all cartooning. To be able to just think of something that, that, uh, that is funny just by the picture itself, uh, which is the best kind of cartooning there really is, uh, which is why you can get away with Lucy pulling away the football, he's way up in the air and he comes down, whoop, you know. Live actors can't do that, and people who sit at a typewriter writing cartoons can't think of things like that. So uh, those are the best ideas, the ones that you can think of vision and I can see funny things in my head all of the time I, I can see the whole Sunday page before I even start it in my head how it's going to work and all of that yeah how, how does your work day go do you wake up and go until you get it done or do you have time? my work day is pretty much standard although I would like to say that I have a five day work week but lately I almost never get it we have so many interruptions people coming to see us everybody from Metropolitan to Hallmark to Connie Boucher, you know, one thing after another all the time. And then there's what I call the stupid autographing. And <laughs> <laughs> Kathy will know what I'm talking about, you know. Will you sign a gol these golf balls? Will you sign this, sign this and all? So it's, it's a continual harassment. And I'm lucky if I, if I get four days, uh, I consider myself fortunate. Five-day work week would be great. Lately, I've been drawing Sunday pages at home uh, if I can think of one, and that helps a little bit. But I, I work basically from 9 to about 4, and then I go home. <laughs> yeah. What prompted the beginning of the rejection slips? What prompted the beginning of the rejection slips was memories. I remember uh, uh, sending things in all the time and getting rejection slips and uh, getting on the train in St. Paul going down to Chicago, making the rounds of the syndicates, getting rejected, getting on the train and going home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was one man that treated me very well. His name was John Dilly Jr. His father founded the John Dilly Syndicate, which used to have uh, uh, Buck Rogers. And he always took the time to talk with me, even though I didn't really have much to show him. But little by little, I knew I was getting closer all of the time. And finally, I got letters that said, we don't want what you have sent us, rather than rejection slips. And <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. I always thought Snoopy was very Chaplin-esque. Oh, I think Chap... Uh, oh, I'm a great admirer of Charlie Chaplin and, of course, Laurel and Hardy. I can sit by myself all alone in a room and just laugh at Laurel and Hardy, you know. And uh, uh, to me, probably the most touching scene ever filmed is in City Lights 
when she finds out that he is the one that had raised money for her eye operation, you know, and of course he, Charlie wrote that beautiful music, and uh, I could watch City Lights over and over and over. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Well, let me. Okay, one more, lady. Mm-hmm. No, I always knew I wanted to draw a comic strip. I didn't know what kind. I had no idea. But little by little, it turned out that when I drew little kids, these were what the editors seemed to like the best. And so I, I just kept on drawing the little kids, and finally finally it sold. I don't consider myself a real artist, but uh, you know, I, I would much rather be Andrew Wyeth, but I, I'll never be able to draw and paint like he can, but he couldn't ever draw a comic strip either, so... <laughs> Anyway, uh, we all, I'm glad you brought that up because we all have people that we had. Anyway, I found this someplace. Uh, I guess it was on, the, on a book jacket, a collection of Out Our Way cartoons. And it said uh, he used to draw uh, machine shop cartoons, these uh, men that had to work making all of these different things in machine shops. And it says the term bull of the woods was borrowed from the lumberjacks. Uh, I used I used it to describe a gruff, poker-faced man prowling among hundreds of machine belts in a shop in Alliance, Ohio. Silhouetted against the hazy shop windows, they had a certain resemblance to a dense woods. The bull was hard-boiled, perhaps, but he was kind. He must have been, or I certainly should have been fired. He said to me one day, <laughs> with fine sarcasm, Pardon my rudeness. You've been turning out two cartoons and one shaft a day on this machine. Couldn't you make it two shafts in one cartoon a day? This is a machine shop. <laughs> and he says, now, now when I have no shafts to do, I have a terrible time turning out one cartoon a day. So I always like that about J.R. Williams. And here's something uh, I would like to close with. It's the same quote that I used last year, but it's become my favorite. And I think it's something, uh, whether or not you're dealing in, with humor or any other kind of writing, It has become my goal, and I think it could conceivably be the goal of each one of you, and I suppose and I hope that you are all admirers of James Thurber. James Thurber couldn't draw at all, but he could draw better than any of us. So he was was a miracle. And after he died, E.B. White wrote his eulogy, and he said about James Thurber, and this this is my goal, and I hope it could be the goal of each of you, He wrote the way a child skips rope and the way a mouse waltzes. I don't know what that means, but I think it's great. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for letting me be with you. I'm glad another year has passed.